You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me. Today is born the seventh one, born of woman, the seventh son, and he in turn of a seventh son. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge. And to quote the immortal Iron Maiden song, uh, Clairvoyant, I am reborn again. A redundant line. <laughs> the, the redundant, the, was it the... the Department of Redundancy Department? <laughs> yes. Uh, certificate of Redundancy Certificate. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Still. guess what I'm doing? Guess what I'm doing tomorrow? Uh, you're going to wear a jaunty hat and unicycle in the snow. No, oh. but good guess. I, I might. I might, but that's not a definite. Okay. What is a definite is I am going to go to see... WWE wrestling oh. for the first time and probably I'm gonna conservatively guess ten years, but it might be as much as fifteen. And you're going in person. It's not like a pay per view because I know you do those a bunch. Well, yeah, I do the pay per views at my house. Right? No, I'm going. I'm leaving my house. I'm going in a car. I'm driving out to Providence to the. I don't even know what it's called this week. I think it's like the Amica something something. Okay. It was formerly the Dunkin' Donut Center, more commonly known around here for us uh, old school people as the Providence Civic Center. Oh, And I'm going okay. to see wrestling. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's that's awesome. Wow. Almost 15, yeah. 10 to 15 years since you saw it live. Yeah. Well, oh, you know what? Now that I think about it, it might be close to 20. Oh. Because during the like the Monday Night Wars, remember whenever wrestling was super popular in the late 90s and early yes, 2000s? I do. Yeah. Whenever something is super, super popular, it tends to attract people that aren't really fans. They're just there to be there. Right. I was just surrounded by, I would always be surrounded by the biggest idiots and it's like, I'm just trying to sit here and, you know, watch the wrestling show. Mm-hmm. I don't need you yelling their catchphrases in my ear and stuff like that. I like, And also, like, you know, you're up in, like, the nosebleed seats. Yes. And the people are yelling at the wrestlers in the ring. It's like, all right, nobody can hear you. You know who can hear you? I can hear you. Right. Shut up. Stop. We're not playing, like, telephone where we're each going to keep passing it down row by row until it gets to, yeah. you know, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I used to say, I love wrestling, but I hate wrestling fans. Mm. Now it's kind of calmed down quite a bit. So my friend Bob wanted to go. You know, the SmackDown's over in Providence. So yeah, we're going. Is, it, is this one? Cool. Is this one that's going to be televised, or is it a house show? See, I'm learning. It's it's going to be televised live. You oh. can watch me live tomorrow, Jeff, and try to spot me. You should, I'll be up in the arena. You should hold no up sense. a sign that says "Check out Twibbly." Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're up in the, uh, you know, change the light bulb seats, but you need, whatever. You need a big sign then. <laughs> That's what you need. Like a sheet. Like You guys hold this? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, hey, check this out. You want to help me out with something cool? Yeah. Like, like Twibbly? 
What wrestler is that? Don't worry, he's going to be on later. Here, just give me the thing back. <laughs> he's the best. He's the greatest. He has uh. no vowels in his name. <laughs> All right, uh, before we get on to the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, okay. Is it a, is it a, a wrestling-related question this week? No, it is not. Hallelujah. Uh, it's a vocabulary-related question, so I oh. think you're going to do good. Okay, well, let's I see. I think you're going to do well, but we'll see. I am going somewhere, and I need to hire a professional. Okay. I need a funambulist. Jeff, I need a funambulist to help me out with something. Wow, okay. What exactly am I looking for? I will tell you at the end of the show. Funambulist. Funambulist. All right, but this is the week beginning January the 15th, and I believe it is your turn to start. It is indeed my turn to start. January 15th, 1983, a guy named Tom Stiles sticks a Lifesaver candy in his mouth and keeps it in shape for over seven hours. I, I, that doesn't, okay, I that doesn't sound like much, <laughs> but like, do you remember putting a Lifesaver in your mouth and how long they lasted? Yeah, like five, six minutes tops. Yes. Seven hours. So, I have a couple of questions. I also One. have a couple of questions. Okay. Maybe you don't know. Maybe they're just rhetorical questions. What flavor lifesaver was it? Because there's different textures to lifesavers. If you get like the wintergreen or the peppermint, they're like that hard, yeah. whitey, yeah. white, kind of chalky kind of lifesaver. But if you get like the five flavors lifesaver, they're more like a Jolly Ranchers and much different like clear hard candy texture to I would it, yeah. think it's the clear hard candy texture one in my experience the minty ones once your saliva wears off the coating that's on them they just crumble uh, but the right. I mean you can kind of keep like a pineapple lifesaver going for a while provided your mouth isn't too I guess full of saliva I can't imagine keeping one no not you know you're, you're crunching not me not the pineapple not one the pineapple. man I'm gonna be I'll be yeah, I'll, yeah. Be, I'll be munching down that one. Pineapple is like one of my favorite ones. Yeah, I actually looked at You'd like the... you have to the, give me whatever that green flavor is. I don't know. I, I don't know. I I still love uh, Lifesavers from when I was a kid. And like the Tootsie Roll, right? How long does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? One, two, three, crunch. Yeah. I never made it to three. I was cr- pretty much crunching, <laughs> crunching them apart as I was taking them out of the wrapper. And Lifesavers are like that too. This is a certain time in your life, I guess, like one of the turning stones of maturity. Yes. Like, because when you're like a little, little kid, getting candy is like the best thing in the world, you know? Not that it's changed not much for me, but like, whenever you were a kid and you used, remember you used to get these at Christmas, you would get like a 10 pack of Lifesavers and this like little fold out book that was yep. shaped like a chimney. Yes. Yeah. That thing lasted that was about like one, an hour with me. That was yeah, it. Yeah. That was like one of the greatest Christmas presents. And then, you know, later on, when you start getting a little bit more materialistic, you get one of those, you're like, the I don't want, you know, where's my $6 million man action figure? I don't want right. a box of candy. <laughs> For me, getting that, like, multiple roll unfoldable candy box was, when you first opened, it's like, oh, my God, there's hours of goodness here. Yeah. And then one hour later, you've got an empty box and a whole bunch of wrapper. <laughs> and a dead disappointment. And a dead disappointment. Uh, you said you still buy lightsabers? Yeah, when I, found, when I can find them, yep. I, it's been a long time since I bought them. But it's also been a long time since like I searched them out. I always see them in the bottom of the vending machine at work, and I swear nobody buys them. <laughs> They've probably been there for like eight years. Some discontinued like flavor and stuff, yeah. There's a famous scene in the Marx Brothers movies, Horse Feathers, yeah. where a woman has fallen out of the, the rowboat that Groucho 
is rowing. And she goes, please, please, give me a lifesaver. Throw me the lifesaver. And he reaches down, and, you sh- and he's got a candies in his hand. Yeah. That's a great early visual joke uh, with the product, <laughs> Just, product placement in it. It throws a candy in there. Yeah. Yep. All right. So moving on. January the 16th, 1987, my favorite musical performers <laughs> ever, the Beastie Boys, appeared on American Bandstand and became the first act to be censored on American Bandstand. Oh, wow. What was actually censored? Well, they showed up with the, you know, they thought that they were going to perform, you know? Right. And here's a fun fact about the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys never once performed Fight for Your Right to Party live. Right. They actually didn't like the song. Much like so me. When they sh- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they showed up to American Bandstand, and then the producers are like, yeah, you're going to be lip-syncing. We're not going to have you performing live. You're going to be lip-syncing. And they're like, okay, that's not what we thought was going to be happening. And they said, yeah, and here's the f- other funny part that you're not going to like, is you're going to be lip-syncing Fight for Your Right to Party, which, like we just said, they didn't like that song. Right. So... With the opportunity played out in front of them to, you know, we're not going to be able to mess up the song because it's already pre-recorded, they just went hog wild, so to speak, and <laughs> performed like the three goofballs that they uh, they were known to be. Uh, I think it was like time said. I watched the clip of it on YouTube and yep. thought it was pretty funny. What I don't understand about this whole story is even when I was like a six-year-old kid, and every single Saturday, my mother watched American Bandstand. That show was on right. until it was off the air in my house every weekend. Even really? I knew at six years old, well, that band's not really playing. <laughs> that <laughs> band's not really playing their music. They're playing to a record. So how the hell did the Beastie Boys not know that already? Yeah, when I was a kid, I was whenever I saw like live, quote-unquote, live performances on TV... And the song has like a fade out. Yeah. I always thought that looked really weird and awkward. Yeah, it looks really weird and awkward. And like it always there was synchronization issues with the lead singer or the guitar player. Or they're just open strumming. Or the yeah. drummers are like off time. Like it was always visible that they weren't really playing. So how, well, like maybe the Beastie Boys never watched it. Yeah. You and know? also like back then too, there wasn't really like wireless like we have now. Right. So you'd be looking, it's like, there's no chords coming out of those guitars. What's going on? <laughs> right, right. They're all magic, I guess. Yep. And it's funny, like, that sort of same style was part of the sort of spiritual successor to American Bandstand, Solid Gold, which was a show I did not like as a kid. Yep, Solid Gold. I remember my friend's mother was a big fan of that one. Yep, that was on every Solid Sunday. Solid Gold Dances. <laughs> yep. Danny Terrio, yeah. Danny Terrio. And then there was another show in England that ran forever called Top of the Pops. Yep. Which was a very similar kind of like format too. Yep. Did you ever see, we referenced Iron Maiden at the top of the show. Iron Maiden was on top of the pops one time performing Wasted Years. I saw that. Listeners, you need to go look for this. Look for Iron Maiden performs on top of the pops. Because once they figured out that they weren't going to be performing live, they were just going to be, you know, miming to a a recorded track. 
they just went like crazy on stage. They made it very obvious that they were playing to a backing I track. Think, I think they traded funny. instruments too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Bruce Dickinson instead of like playing the guitar from like behind Adrian Smith and yeah. stuff. Yeah, it, it's super funny. It was. It's. It's. It is really funny. It's not. I mean. I guess being in the spirit of the thing, it's more... I would think it would happen more often, but I guess if it was going to happen more often, the show wouldn't have lasted that long because it's meant to showcase music and, you know, the bands don't want people to be like, oh, God, you know, these guys are clowns. Yeah. They're not... The music isn't serious, so it's easier to sort of right. play along to whatever the track is and hope that it sells records. If it happened more often, it wouldn't be as awesome right. as what it does. Yeah. Right, right, right. I've gone and tried to watch some, like, Marillion clips of them because they were on Top of the Pops, like, four or five times. Yep. It's unwatchable because they're not playing live. No. And it's very obvious because Fish isn't... He doesn't have a microphone. Right. Ugh. Ugh, give me live music. Yeah, I'll take live music. There used to be a show on that was live called The Old Grey Whistle Test. I don't yep. know if you've ever seen that, but you can find episodes of that on YouTube, too, where it's a concert clip of a band playing live, and, and it's the same format as top of the pops but it's awesome it's way that's the one with way all more like awesome the, like psychedelic green screen stuff behind the band right no that's beat club that was a oh, okay. that was another show that was another that one. was a british style of uh, american bandstand but um okay. old gray whistle test is just bands playing live on stage that's all it is it's oh, great nice. it's super fantastic all right let's move on to the 17th january 17th 1954 uh, the very first, like, well, I guess it's not the very first nature TV documentary, but it's the one that sets the standard for television until today. Uh, Jacques Cousseau's telecast airs on Omnibus, which is a, a TV show on CBS, where he introduces Whoa. the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, or scuba gear. The camera they invented that lets him take pictures underwater of fish and coral and other undersea animals, and effectively creates naturism on television on this show omnibus in 1954 and since then i don't think there's been a lack of nature-based television programs since from mutual of omaha's wild kingdom in the 60s and early 1970s all the way to the stuff that is on animal planet and the discovery channel and stuff now oh that was a real long sentence that was a long one yeah sorry (laughs) i was just jumping right in there all right what do we got for the 18th no uh (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, Jacques Cousteau and, you know, Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom, they were like the two standards in the early goings, you know, when there was still only three networks and all that. Once we started moving into the 80s and 90s, you know, more specifically in the 90s with a lot of cable channels is, you know, when we got Steve Irwin and the Crocodile Hunter because that guy was absolutely nuts and... (laughs) Every day, I mean, it was really strange the way he passed away. But, like, every day you're watching the show, you're like, you just wait for this guy to, like, get his head bitten off. Right. It's clear that the show wasn't live because you never saw him, like, run. Go on, Crocodile Lama's 80, yeah. you know? <laughs> you never heard him call the Crocodile a motherfucker, yeah. Yeah. I remember watching The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau as a kid and absolutely being in love with that as a program and an idea for how, like, where else can you see the undersea, right? It was po- so popular that it, it generated... Do you remember the Benny Hill sketch that it generated about Jacques Cousteau? Where, Possibly. Where the Calypso was off looking for the elusive forward-walking crab. 
Yes, the forward walking crab. Yes. <laughs> and the reason that the forward walking crab was so elusive and was forward walking was because a previous boat had dumped a barrel of rum off the side of the boat and the crabs were drunk. <laughs> I remember laughing so hard at that as a kid that like I still have laughter shocks and I'm 54 years old about that <laughs> when I see a crab it's the elusive forward walking crab um, yeah no seriously yes. yeah whenever I see a crab at the beach I think about the forward walking crab as well yeah <laughs> he was blind stinking drunk <laughs> one of my favorite favorite uh, Benny Hill sketches was that one January the 18th 1980 uh, something we never talk about on the show <laughs> Pink Floyd's album, The Wall, hits number one. Oh. We've talked about Pink Floyd, The Wall, on this show a number of times, but I have something new we can uh, discuss and talk about. Yes. Because I had not watched the movie on, uh, in its entirety. I may have seen clips and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. I had not watched the movie in its entirety in probably a good 10 years. Oh, you know? wow. Okay. Yeah, it, it had been a very long time. And my... Godchild and his fiance, they come over and watch movies every once in a while. And she had never seen The Wall. And I was like, oh, good. Any excuse I can to watch it. Right. I discovered the movie Pink Floyd The Wall. That was my introduction pretty much to Pink Floyd as a right. band. Right. Like, you know, I knew the songs that would be played on the radio and all that, but really like appreciating them as a band didn't happen until I was like 16 when I saw The Wall for the first time. Right. And I was obsessed. I watched that movie so much. I remember the summer, the July after we graduated high school, I watched that movie every single day for the entire month of July. So I watched it 31 times in a row, basically, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, like I said, my godchild and his fiance come over, and I watched it with adult eyes, and it was like watching a completely different movie. Like, I knew every beat, I knew every scene, I knew every word, but it was like watching a brand new movie. Strange. It's definitely one that changes, your perception of it changes over time. I saw that in, when it was released in, was it the film came out in what, 81 or 82? Uh, 82. 82. I saw it in 82. Um, I don't know if it was in a midnight movie, but it was a nighttime show, and I absolutely hated it. And we had the record. I still have the original 1980 pressing of that. It sounds like this. Because it's beat to death from you know me being right. a kid. But when I saw the film, I, it did not resonate with me when I was like 12. I wasn't old enough. Right. Then I saw it again yeah, on Laserdisc when I was 16 or 17, and it was like, like it blew my head off. It was so amazing. Right. It's very phantasmagoric, which is my word for today it's very phantasmagoric and it really really appeals to the whole angry young man right but i'm not an angry young man anymore the only way i could describe it that would make sense was whenever i watched it as a young man it was like looking into a mirror now it's like looking through a window right is that yeah is that that poetic or what it is is poetic if you're a regular uh a regular Robert Frost. Roger Waters. <laughs> <laughs> the Wall was one of the first three DVDs I bought when I bought a DVD player. Like, I bought a DVD player and three DVDs at the same time. Yep. And I still have my copy of The Wall that I bought then. So, it's it's clearly one that's resonated with me, uh, certainly since then. 
The Wall was the first DVD I ever owned. Yep. My friend Rich bought it for me for Christmas, and I didn't even have a DVD player, but he kind of figured I'd be getting one soon enough, so we got ahead of that that horse, yeah. I have it on CD and stuff, but I listened to it most on tape because at the time I was driving a lot, and I only had yeah. a tape deck in my car. It was before CDs were like, they were luxury items still that you had to order when you bought a car. Right. And uh, I burned out a couple of versions of the tape of the album, and I still think the album is a, is f- utterly fantastic. I still give it to like relatives as they turn 16. I yep. give them a copy of The Wall, and I give them a copy of uh, Clockwork Orange, and I'm like, this is where you, if you're going to rebel. This is how you start, you know? <laughs> and The Teen Angst uh, Starter Kit, Oh, definitely, right? yeah, Teen Angst Starter Kit. That's, this is what you want. Like, here you go, and... This will change the course of your life, whether you believe it or not. I like the record a lot more now, even than I did as a kid. And I like the movie a lot more now than I did, uh, even as a teenager. But again, it's for different reasons now. Like the storytelling structure, the backwards and forwards in time, and the two competing storylines that are parallel, and all of that stuff is really, really interesting. Whereas when I was 16, it was like, yeah, <laughs> it's okay to be angry it's and stuff. <laughs> right? People suck and everybody should die. But yeah, fantastic record. All right, moving on to the 19th. January 19th, 2013, seven-time winner of the Tour de France, Lance Armstrong, admits to doping or taking performance-enhancing drugs for all seven of those races. What a guy. Yeah, that was like upsetting to a lot of people, but it was kind of like upsetting to me because I'm a cyclist. Not that I watched the Tour de France, but the whole thing about cycling is it's not a very exciting sport. And not a lot of people are, like, super into it. Right. You know, like, Lance Armstrong was, like, the first superstar. Right. He was, like, go ahead, name another person that won the Tour de France. I'll sit here and wait while you Google. Right. You don't know. But you know who Lance Armstrong is, and you know who Lance Armstrong was before the doping incident. He yes. was a superstar. Nobody wins seven Tour de France's in a row. No. So Not anymore. It, no, certainly not. <laughs> not without performance against the drugs. Yeah. And it was kind of like a... I don't know, I'm not going to say heartbreaking. I wasn't like moping around the house, you know, with my big bottom lip going, wondering what I'm going to do next. But like, it was a, you know, a heartbreaking moment in a lesser sense because here's this guy that fooled us all. He was doping. All of these titles that he had are worthless. All the people that came in second place that really won because he's an asshole, Mm -hmm. we still don't remember their names. It's like, oh, by the way, uh, you know, Pierre, you won this gold medal. Here you go. You know, it's just like a retroactive pat on the back at a boy kind of thing. And the worst part about it all was Lance Armstrong was such a dick about it, too. There's an argument to, to have about performance-enhancing drugs in sport anyway, right? Like, as somebody who's in this, I'm the audience. I'm the guy who they're trying to attract to sit and watch the sport, whether it's right. baseball, football, soccer, it doesn't matter what it is. What do I want to see? I want to see the best play from the professionals that are doing it. I want to see the fastest times. I want to see the most goals. I want to see the farthest home runs and the most crippling tackles and the only way to keep the i think to keep the audience engaged in this the players to get bigger stronger faster so the game has to evolve to accommodate those bigger stronger faster players so i'm somebody who's like 
performance-enhancing drugs. I don't know. Do I have to ride a bike against Lance Armstrong? No? Well, then shoot that guy up with bull testosterone. I don't care. You know? Everybody right. should be doing it to see how fast they can go. You know? there's Yeah. That's a real gray area because performance-enhancing drugs lead to more performance-enhancing drugs. And then you get to a point where you're, you're putting athletes' lives in danger. You know? Yes. I, I'm, I'm an anti-doper. <laughs> okay. yeah, anti I do like the the George Carlin-esque, you know, point of view that you have there. Yeah. Yeah, I want to see, I want to see violence. I want to see everything, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. But the fact that he was doing it and screwing everybody else out of their, you know, he would have won if it wasn't for the performance and well, drugs. It's, it's like with uh, Mark McGuire, right? The race to, I think it was like the race to 500 home runs and yeah. you can see his his arms were so gigantic his upper arms were so gigantic i don't think he could touch yeah. his belly button right but it doesn't, oh, that's what he was trying to sell the world on creatine right yeah and he's like nah i'm not taking anything i'm not shooting up with steroids okay watch me hit this ball and bounce it off the international space station pretty much ultimately he and jose conseco and some other guys all did that but it didn't make the race to 500 any less exciting was it disappointing? Ah, you know, even I was like, I'm not really disappointed. You know, I want to see this guy get to 500. I want to see the other guy get to 500. I want to see what the strategy is for the other people to, to now, how do they up their game? What do they do? How does it change things? What does it cause? That's the person, the writer kind of character in me who's looking to see how it forces an evolution of whatever that sport is. So like in Tour de France, they evolve the rules to keep you from using performance enhancing drugs, but it can go the other way. There was a... What was it? Vince McMahon's bodybuilding oh, franchise, the, uh, right? Yeah, I forget what that was. That, Where it was like, steroids? Of course you can use those. And that yeah, was yeah. <laughs> so different than the all-natural bodybuilding that it evolved out of. To the point where guys were like 89% muscle and like 6% calcium, and that was just around their brainstem. Uh, I, this is something that you and I are not going to come to terms on. Probably I, not. I am not. I am not pro-doping. Not, not in any sense. No way. All right. Uh, so moving on to, and also Lance Armstrong's an asshole. So moving on to uh, January the twentieth of nineteen twenty-four, Jeff. We have our first celebrity birthday of the week. Oh, happy and day! He has sold millions of records, and he has got some jet black hair and a very strange mustache. Your mother's favorite, Slim Whitman. My mother's And you're favorite. saying who? Listeners out there are saying who? Slim Whitman. Stars that fell like the rain out of the blue. When my life is through, and the angels ask me to recall the thrill of them all. And trust me, whenever the infomercials would come on in late night television during the 80s. And they would advertise records of multi-platinum recording artist Slim Whitman. We all said the same thing. Who? <laughs> yeah, I don't know where Slim Whitman came from or where he went. I don't know where Slim Whitman sold his millions upon millions of records. Maybe he sold them in like the Eastern Bloc countries. This is why you do not want to be in the United States with the Americans. <laughs> Listen to what it is that they have on their radio stations. Mm? Uh, or something along what? those lines. 
The thing is, like, he was an American country music singer-songwriter. Yes. And country music has never been popular outside of the United States. And another thing that made him stand out was he also had some tremendous yodeling abilities. Yeah. And yodeling outside of the Dave Matthews Band and <laughs> Adele, you know, that doesn't sell a lot of records either. He claims that he sold in excess of 120 million records, right. which is a lot. The actual figures are close to 70 million, which is still a lot. And he recorded over like 500 songs. You know, the audience doesn't know this, but I had to look up to find out what the hell his famous song was, the clip that we paid before. Right. I don't know. But I mean, also, this is out of my generation, too. Right. This guy was, you know, he's my mother's age. I'm using the word popular in its broadest definition. He was yeah. popular in the nineteen, like early nineteen fifties. That's when he was getting radio airplay on country stations, like in the Midwest and South. Never right. made it into New England. People would have just turned the radio off and started forming oh, the band sure. Aerosmith, like right away. We would have had oh, Aeros- well, Aeros- <laughs> Aerosmith. We would have had fifteen years earlier if Slim would have been on the radio here in New England. Here's a fun little tidbit: in the nineteen fifties, whenever Whitman toured, Elvis Presley was his opening act. Nice. I'm sure that that was yeah. like Jimi Hendrix opening for the monkeys. Uh, yeah. In the audience, like, <laughs> get that guy off the stage. I want to hear the yodeling song again. I didn't come here to see no gyrating teenager. I came here to listen to a dude yodel. Yeah, I want to hear the Indian love call, not some hunk of hunk of burning love. <laughs> right. Well, Slim Women's career sort of came back around in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s because of late night TV advertising so yep. for those of you who do not remember or for those of you who are new to this discussion you, there used to be a very popular form of late night tv advertising which was for music by artists that no one in their right mind had ever heard of so there was slim whitman was very popular uh, advertisement so it was nana muscuri and the godfather of all of these guys a dude named peter lemongello peter lemongello <laughs> we'll have to find a way to talk about him at length on this show sometime but Peter Lemongello yeah. was a guy who just bought commercials and recorded his own album and sold himself as a million-selling, world-famous crooner and yeah. <laughs> sold millions of records to gullible people. The records are, it's like if your uncle recorded an album. That's what it's sort of like. Oh, wait, so this Peter Lemongello never had an album? He just had a best-of yeah. album that he sold oh, out yeah. late night? Yep. That is amazing! <laughs> yeah. He was so full of baloney, he was uh, almost an Italian grinder. So, um, oh, and but he, I mean, he set the stage. You can make a ton of money doing this, and I'm sure whoever it was that had Slim Whitman's catalog, because I'm pretty sure it wasn't Slim, was able to make a ton of money selling Slim Whitman, Boxcar Willie, uh, Nana Muscuri, among others, to the late night, probably high, very possibly drunk audience who had money to spend in a telephone next to them, couldn't wait to get their hands on the newest, oldest. Best of Slim Whitman LP. And I'm sure they put it on and they played two songs and the first thought they had was, what the, what the hell is this? And then it never got played again. I will say as someone who paused through old records at Goodwill, there's a lot of Slim Whitman records in those piles from the old Meme's record collections. Um, he's still doing well for himself on Spotify. For somebody that's, uh, you know, died some time ago when he was 90... You know, hasn't had a record in, you know, 70 years. He still generates about 65,000 monthly listens. Ah. 
Good for you, Slim. Much like uh, my comments and so many of these other artists, I'm sure that's because he's added to channels, you know, country channels and stuff. Right. Um, and I will say this for anybody who's out there who's a uh, who's looking for a band name, Thick Whitman. You know, <laughs> just think about it. One of his albums is called Yodeling. Yeah, it's, well, it's just right on the nose. Just leave that right there. All right, and let's wrap up the week. Okay. January 21st, 1998. White House intern Monica Lewinsky admits on tape that she had an affair with President Clinton. This kicks off a multi-year kerfuffle in Washington and on the news that not only tempers the Clinton presidency, all two terms of it, but changes the way that the news and Washington interact from then on to now. Yeah, it ultimately got him impeached, too. It did get him impeached, mostly because he uh, lied to Congress and said that he didn't have a relationship with Monica Lewinsky, and then all of the tapes came out from Linda Tripp, and yeah, he did. It changed the way that the news in Washington interact because now it became about the personality of the person in office less than the policy right. of the person in office would have been championing. And also, it's a scandal, and everybody loves a scandal. Everybody does love a scandal, especially when you can use it to your political ends. And that's really what happened. It, I'm not going to say it didn't cripple the entire Democratic Party for about five years, but it definitely hobbled them for a while. They were limping along for a while. It hurt. You want to watch something really, really interesting, because, like... You know, we don't discuss politics on this show, but history is history. Yes. But if you want to watch something really, really interesting, I forget who the interviewer was, but I watched an interview with Monica Lewinsky, and I think she did a TED Talk as well. And she's very well-spoken. She's very articulate and all that. And one of the questions was, why didn't you change your name? Because she was just so synonymous with this scandal. And, you know, everybody made all sorts of jokes about her mm-hmm. everywhere you went. Saturday Night Live, I'm quite sure, would you say five years it took the Democratic oh, yeah, Party to least. get over it? And they never yeah. got over it. They, no, they, Saturday Night Live never did, for sure, right? right? You know, I mean, it's ripe for parody. It's a very funny and odd situation. You know, it's like I said, it's ripe for parody. So they asked her, you know, why didn't you change your name? And I don't remember what her exact answer was, but it came down to that would be too easy. Right. I mean, think about that. Put yourself in her shoes. Put yourself in her blue dress for a second there. It needs to be cleaned. I don't want to wear it until it's dry cleaned. (laughs) But everywhere you go, everybody knows your face. Yep. Everybody knows who you are. Yep. And you're the butt of every joke. And yet she continued on and did well for herself, you know? I remember her being on... Do you remember when Michael Moore had a weekly TV show? It was brief. It was like for maybe two seasons back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. I guess I was married already, so it would have been middle to the late 1990s. 95. 95, yeah. yeah. Uh, was, that the awful tr- was that The Awful Truth? I think that was the name of it, yeah. And I remember him him interviewing her and, like, going to her hometown and talking with her. And she was getting involved in, like, designing purses and fashion and all this stuff. But everywhere she went, the specter of this scandal just loomed over her. And she sort of dealt with it with grace and dignity that 
was considerably better than the other people who were involved in this scandal. Uh, until I, I dropped the platform for myself. But I used to follow her on Twitter, and she was very, you know, a very entertaining channel to follow, yeah, for sure. I'm sure. I'm on your side, Monica. Me too. Yep. All right. Uh, before we get into our worst movie ever, <laughs> good one this week, guys. Oh, yes. If you're going to sit down and watch a movie, you're going to need popcorn. So on January the 19th, we are celebrating National Popcorn Day. You a popcorn fan? Oh, my God. I could eat my weight in popcorn. I love popcorn. I absolutely love popcorn. I love movie popcorn. There's uh, something about in the being in the movie theater and just demolishing the entire bag or box or bucket of popcorn before you're even done with the trailers. <laughs> yeah, there is definitely something to be said for that. That popcorn is wicked salty. Yeah. Uh, which is fine on occasion. I make a ton of popcorn at home. I have a, a like a popcorn maker with a crank handle on it on top of the stove. Oh, Jesus. And oh, it, really? And it makes like a bucket worth of popcorn in about three and a half minutes. It's awesome. And I have an air popper. Pretty low key with that. I have an air popper. That's really good. My friend used to make it with like the thing that you're talking about there with the, the, the crank handle and yeah, all that. Yeah, it's called a whirly but, pop. He would use, instead of like vegetable oil, he would use coconut oil. That was really good. Hmm. I use regular vegetables. I've used Crisco and when I've needed to, but uh, generally, yeah, vegetable oil works works really well. well and, try, uh, it out with, uh, try it out with coconut oil. It was really, really good. And I remember, oh, like, so heartbreaking. We had gone, there was this movie theater in Providence called the Avon. You know, it was like a, oh, a, yeah. yep. a, a be real movie theater yes and their popcorn was popped in peanut oil mm -hmm. which tasted like an open-faced asshole sandwich <laughs> that was disgusting for me to not enjoy popcorn that was yeah something. you have to, that was you have to work it at it yeah yeah they worked at it yep i don't know what it was and i like peanuts fine i love peanut butter but yeah cooking popcorn and peanut oil that popcorn was awful <laughs> what do you what do you put on when you make it at home with the air popper what do you put on it if anything I'm a butter guy. Mm -hmm. I'm a butter guy, but I don't get bothered with like melting butter in the pan and all that. I buy, <laughs> I buy that chemical spray that kind of tastes like butter. Oh, it's, I can't believe yeah. it's. I can't believe they thought I would think this was butter. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> that's that's what I do. And know what else I like is they have those flavored shakers that you can put on it. It's like yep. a salt substitute. Yes. And uh, the cheddar one is really good, actually. I I go with regular butter, but I do a garlic powder and black pepper on mine. It's wicked good, wicked delicious. Yes, black pepper. Oh yeah, that's the that's that's my jam for popcorn. As the kids used to say twelve years ago. <laughs> so from black pepper to white whales, we've got the worst. Movie ever. Uh, Jeff. Bill. Uh, <laughs> did you know, prior to last week when I suggested this, did you know that there was a... I thought it was a sequel, but it's not a sequel. Mm -hmm. But did you know that there was a reboot <laughs> to Hervin Melville's Moby Dick? I did not know that there was a reboot slash adaptation of Herman Melville's Moby Dick, the greatest Modern novel retelling. Written. Yes, the greatest novel written in American history. And this 
film comes to us from our friends at the Asylum, who are the studio that produces the Sci-Fi Channel original movie. You may not realize that that is not a mark of quality. <laughs> this movie that we're talking about is called 2010 Moby Dick, or Moby Dick 2010, depending on how you want to read it. Right. A couple of weeks ago, I watched what I thought was my favorite movie of last... Well, it came out two years ago, but I watched it in 2023. It was my favorite movie of 2023 was A24 Studios' The Whale. Yeah. With with Brendan Fraser. Yes. And directed by Darren Aronofsky. Right. And I thought that movie was fantastic. And there's, you know, speaking of whales... There's a little bit of talk and a little bit of allegory to Moby Dick in that movie. Right. Which got me on a uh, a kick where I was uh, going to do it again. I was going to try to do the audiobook of Moby Dick, but man, it's not for me. I can't get through the 60 hours or whatever it is. It's it's not for me. I know you've read the book you know, more times than I've seen Pink Floyd The Wall. Uh, I don't know if I've read which it that a, many times, but I've read it a which handful, is a, yeah. So I started watching the, uh, I got through part one of it, I guess still finish it up, but I started watching the 1998 version of Moby Dick that was like a made-for-TV movie or a little miniseries yep. or whatever it was with Patrick Stewart as uh, Captain Ahab. Yes. And as I was looking around for part two to watch, I saw this, 2010 <laughs> Moby Dick, and I was like, okay, this is going to be amazing. This movie stars... A bunch of people. <laughs> the only one whose name you're really going to recognize is Barry Bostwick. And Barry Bostwick played Brad Majors in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yep. It also stars a lot of other people that you may have seen in commercials for things like medicine or car insurance or some other thing. Hey, this guy did the voiceover for those <laughs> Slim Whitman commercials. <laughs> right, exactly. Because this is a film from The Asylum... It was made for almost the cost of two Happy Meals at McDonald's. <laughs> and all of that money went I, to Barry Bostwick. I looked at it, yeah. The budget was $500,000. Yeah, it's that's not a, that's t totally not a lot of money. For a movie that has a surprisingly large cast, for those of you who don't know who The Asylum is or have seen their films, you'll notice in their all of their films that they use the same like four sets. So this one has the submarine slash space ship slash space station slash inside of the mech set which is where 90 percent of the film takes place it's very dark and misty and there's a lot of yep. like blinky blooky lights and dials and cranks on things and people wearing headphones and that's where like 90 percent of this movie takes place it is ultimately a retelling of moby dick but not the whole novel it's from about the point in the novel where the pequod crosses over the Strait of Magellan and gets to the Pacific and starts to hunt for Moby Dick in the Pacific. And I'm going to say this, and this is going to be something that Bill and I are clearly going to argue about. I thought the script for this film was really, really well done and very reverent of the source material, which when you say those things and realize this film came from the asylum, it's almost like we've slipped into a parallel universe. I was talking about this movie with some people at work I described it as somebody who has a real, like, boner for the military but isn't in the military right. wanted to make a, an action movie and their source material 
was a book report <laughs> written by an eighth grader about Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah, it's prob- because, probably not too far off. Because it has a lot of the beats of Moby Dick, like the Ishmael character is there, but instead of being a lonely guy trying to just make a couple of bucks going out on a whaling ship, instead it's a marine biologist girl that that attracts whales in her boat using you know whale sounds yes you know she's like a scientist and the movie opens up with a submarine 1969 with a submarine trying to like infiltrate soviet waters right and then this leviathan uh white whale like just like bites the submarine in half throws it up onto the land and then the submarine crashes and takes off this dude's leg. Uh, you know, enter Captain Ahab. Right. So now it's like 2010, modern times, and Captain Ahab still, you know, wants to find this whale and kill it because, because, because that's what, well, ultimately that's what the Captain Ahab character does. Yes. That's, what, that's his nature, yeah. It's vengeance, yeah. Vengeance for losing his leg and getting a big scar right. down the side of his face. Right. If you know if you know the story of Moby Dick, then n- none of the beats in this are gonna are gonna be lost on you. So. Right. I mean, the beats of the st- the beats of the story are there, but to me, I don't know. Like the whole like lesson of the book, because the book and the you know the longer form movies like the one I'm watching now and the earlier one with Gregory Peck, you know, it explores the uh, the themes of loneliness. You know, Captain Ahab just being hell bent on revenge to take down this whale even though in the original story if he just left the whale alone then everybody would have been happy and, you know? and alive yeah and alive but in this movie the white whale is making its way towards land and there's a couple of scenes in this movie where <laughs> the Mo- Moby Dick actually can traverse on land yeah, which was... was fun Yeah. alright uh, let me preface my, my commentary by saying this if you put a giant monster in your movie. I am already I already have my ticket. You don't have to convince yeah. me of anything. So I was fully invested in this and I bought into it from the get-go. Even though and we'll talk about the high quality Sega Dreamcast special effects that come with this film later. Yeah. But I like giant monster movies. So my willing suspension of disbelief is instant if I see a giant monster. Instant. Like I Fully buy it. I'm, I don't care what happens in the movie. There's a giant monster and I'm good. If you're going to do an eighth grade book report on Moby Dick, right. you can sum up this movie really quick. Captain Ahab loses his leg to a white whale. Captain Ahab is hell-bent on killing this white whale. Captain Ahab drags a bunch of people on his fool's quest with him and gets everybody killed. Yep. That's pretty that's, much you know, it. Yes. That's yeah. That, in simple terms, that's what happens. So now let's discuss the special effects. So there's this <laughs> one scene, the one that the one that killed me, the one that killed me that I laughed my ass off until it happened a second time was there was this like cruise ship, yes, like a small one, like a part. That wasn't even a cruise ship. It was a party boat. Right, it was a party boat. Yes, Moby Dick breaches like maybe. 50 yards away from it. <laughs> yes. I mean, a complete a complete breach. Like, right out of the water, head and tail, and then lands and doesn't make a single wave. That should have just flipped that boat right over. But it's just, like, up, down, into the water with, a, like, the splash of a, of a cliff diver. Nothing. Just... 
right into the water. <laughs> and that those weren't the only um, considerably questionable special effects. When uh, Moby Dick is is fighting with the S- uh, the Akushnet, that's the first sub that it sinks. Yep. Uh, aside from the fact that they use the exact same submarine footage in every single Asylum film that has a submarine in it, which is every single Asylum film, period. <laughs> There's a bit where its scale keeps changing for, as it goes by the sub. At one point, it goes by the sub. It's about the same size as the sub. And then the next time, it's big enough that it can like grab the sub in its mouth like it's a fish and, and push it 100 million yards out of the ice and drop the submarine and then steal part of the submarine and eat it. It's like, none of it makes any sense. There are points where it is super blocky. You can see like the outside, the pixel outlines um, around good old Moby Dick because he doesn't have a smooth surface. So anytime you're looking at the edges of the rendered uh, whale monster, it looks like friggin' Echo the Dolphin. It's just (laughs) just terrible. But again, I didn't care. I was so, perfectly okay with that because I've seen Asylum films before, so I knew what to expect. But I also didn't care because it was a giant monster. And I was way more invested in the way that they were approaching Moby Dick than the way that they were approaching the look of Moby Dick. So at the end of the movie, the big plan is, I guess it was still the Pequod submarine. They were going to fire this like nuclear missile at Moby Dick and it was ultimately going to hit this island. Yeah. Right? So you got all these people, all of Captain Ahab's men, like, on the island. Oh, I forgot all about this. Uh, Captain Ahab had this, like, big, honking, ridiculous-looking spear gun. And where <laughs> this thing came from was when they were making this movie, they bought a spear gun for Barry Boswick to use at a yard sale. Yes. Right? And he takes a look at it and he goes, this isn't going to sell anything. He goes, Captain Ahab is crazy. Captain Ahab needs a crazy spear gun. So he made the prop spear gun for that movie. This big, ridiculous looking thing. <laughs> and he's and he says he still has it. It's in his garage. Oh, that's, that's great. That's funny. Yeah. So he goes out on, on like in his rowboat, jams the spear gun in... Um, and Moby Dick's like orbit a lot, not really in his eye, but near his right. eye. Yep. They actually redid the scene right out of the book where he cuts his hand and bleeds on the on the spear, which yeah. I thought was a nice touch yes. too. Yeah. So at the end, they have all of Captain Ahab's men on the shoreline, just like digga 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 digga, firing machine guns at Moby Dick, which does way better in shallow waters than most Leviathan-sized whales I've seen. Yeah. They fire this nuke that's going to, you know, take out the whale, but it's also going to take out the island. And these guys, like one guy lights a cigarette, the other guy's taken out a flask, and they're just accepting their fate. And, and a line in the movie that I absolutely loved was the girl, the, the, uh, the Ishmael character, she's going to take off running. And they said to her, you can't outrun a nuke. And she says, I could try. And I love that line because I'm a ridiculously positive person. Yes. And I really like that line. I could try. I like that. If you were to put this movie uh, on one screen and put the 1956 uh, John Huston directed film on the other screen and ran them at the same time, the beats would be the same. It was amazing to think that, that it worked. It worked as well as it did. 
I mean, if you started at the same point in the in, I mean, this movie is eighty six minutes long. It's not a long movie, and right. and John Huston's Moby Dick is a couple of hours, right? It's almost two hours. <laughs> and the special effects are better than the nineteen fifty six. They, they definitely are better. But if you if you put them side by side and you you have them both running at the same time, you'll find that like the conversations that are taking place in the nineteen fifty six Pequod are the same conversations that are taking place on the submarine Pequod at the same time with almost the same content. There are even some well-pulled and rewritten to modernize quotes that end up in the film that come directly out of Melville's writing. And the thing that I found the most interesting about the script was how, like I said, how reverent it was to the source material. Nothing is played for laughs. Barry Bostwick is a scenery-chewing Ahab, but it suits the character. He's always been played that way. Even Gregory Peck kind of played him that way. Yep. And... The way that they modernized the and captured the cast, they did things like they had Queequeg was the heart was a harpooner in Moby Dick. In this, he runs the torpedoes, so he's a harpooner in this. Stubbs is the first lieutenant. Stubbs was one of the guys who uh, who is the commander of one of the whale boats. So like they've taken the time to actually adapt the characters in a way that is the same as they would be in the original novel, and I thought that was really clever. Even the conversations that Ahab has, like so, they one significant change that they make in the original. There's that they run across another boat called the Rachel. The captain of which has a has lost his arm, and he's got a, an arm with like a the head of a, a a harpoon on it for a hand. And he's like, "Oh, it's good for tapping kegs, ha ha!" You know. And in this film, that guy is he was on Ahab's on the cushion and had his arm bitten off the same time Ahab had his leg bitten off. And has an artificial hand, and he's sent out to find Ahab and prevent him from, I don't know what, causing an international incident or something. Because in the book, he was trying to talk Ahab out of hunting Moby Dick. Right. And he's like, don't, you know, don't bother. Help us find... It. He actually, he's looking for his son, right? His Later in the book, his son, right. is, his son has been killed. And he's like, why won't you come help me look? He's like, no, no, we gotta go kill the whale. Sorry, good luck. Hope you find your boy. In this film... There's a bit where he ends up on the Pequod. How he gets there is stupid, but I'm not going to describe it in any detail. Just imagine that he got there on a uh, an Osprey. That's how he did. And he goes to, to Ahab and he's going to shoot him, which is the, a scene where in the 56 version, it's Starbuck who's going to shoot Ahab because he knows Ahab's nuts. And he can't right. bring himself to do it because Ahab gives this great speech, right? And it starts off like... You know, it's a, it was a it was a quiet day and a and a quiet looking sky, or calm looking sky, right? And he gives this whole speech about how, for billions of years, this conflict between he and the whale has been coming. And if if this conflict wasn't meant to happen, then there is no God because God is acting through all of them and making all of these things happen. And he's just he's just a player in this bigger play. They have that same conversation on the the Pequod submarine. And as I was watching it, I had the biggest dumb smile on my face because he managed to adapt it in a way that made it relevant in this crappy $500,000, you know, giant monster whale movie. And I didn't care. I was so happy to see that that was there. There were two other things that, that they did in the film that I really liked. One was when they were on that stupid CGI island was uh, Ahab needed another leg. So he <laughs> he uh, he grabbed. He's like, pass me one of the the headstones. There's like a wooden crosses, because the island used to be a leper colony. At least that's what he tells us. 
and he takes one of the crosses and he sticks it on his leg and he says, oh, this is the this one belongs to Father Maple. Father Maple was the priest on this island until he succumbed to leprosy too. Well, in Moby Dick... Yeah, yeah, that's the guy at Siemens Bethel. Father, right. Father Maple is the guy that gives the Jonah and the whale speech in Siemens Bethel. And I was like, that's great. They worked that in. Also, they called the island Taipei. And Taipei was the second book that Melville wrote. He wrote Umu, Taipei, both about his trips as a whaler before he wrote Moby Dick. So they actually called oh, back okay. to, to something else. And I was like, that's great. That was fantastic. I, I thought all of that stuff was wonderful. And as far as Captain Ahab's go... I'll take Barry Bostwick over Patrick Stewart any day. Okay, yeah, I'm watching the Patrick Stewart one, and Patrick Stewart just comes across as Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Patrick Stewart is almost too likable. He, yeah. He's too likable, whereas Captain Ahab is supposed to be, like, feared. So, you know what I think is uh, fearful? Is the fact that I need to hire somebody, Jeff. Oh, man. I need to hire a funambulist, Jeff. What am I looking for? I have a funambulist. A funambulist sounds like it would be someone who oversees a funeral. Oh, see, I thought you were going to go in the other direction because uh, an ambulist would be somebody that walks. walks. Yeah. So, yep. So, but a funambulist is a tightrope walker. Oh. That is the actual name of a tightrope walker. A is a funambulist. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. I never knew that. <laughs> yep. So you can throw that into your vernacular Fun- now. Funambulist, huh? No, we went to the circus and we saw a funambulist. A what? A tightrope walker. What are you, an idiot? <laughs> Did you have fun? No, but I had a funambulist. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! No, oh, sorry. We saw a tightrope walker. A funambulist? No, there was just one of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just the one. Just the one. All right. That's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already. And tell your friends. Twibly is approved by Emperor Norton, protector of Mexico and friend to Canada.